This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. A pleasure to have you with me this week. When we started The Motley Fool in July of 1993, it was the very first page of the first print issue, because that's what The Motley Fool was. It was just a newsletter, a printed newsletter for our parents' friends, as it turns out. They were the only ones willing to pay $48 a year to David and Tom Gardner and their friend Eric Rideholm as the three of them co-founded The Motley Fool and scribbled about the stock market and other cultural, sports, and topics of well, a great deal of motley interest. Anyway, they were the ones who started The Motley Fool, our parents' friends, and we're still grateful for them. But what we wrote on that first page was, we're here to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. And when we launched as a website, actually it started as an AOL site in 1994, and then on the web, we kept that phrase with us, to educate, to amuse, and to enrich, and we still use that a lot at The Motley Fool today. We've since said that the purpose of our company is to help the world invest better. So, that's what primarily you might hear from us today, but you'll often still hear some of that educated, amuse, enrich talk around Fool HQ and on our digital properties, and that's what we're doing today. So, I like to think every week, not just Rule Breaker Investing, but all five Motley Fool podcasts, I hope educate, amuse, and enrich. I always say never two without the third. Um, always want to have all three going on. But in particular, this week, I decided I wanted to have some educate because it's been a little while since we did any kind of investing 101 topics. And so I've selected five phrases, five concepts that I think are helpful for anybody who's interested in the stock market and business. Now, there are innumerable phrases, some of them quite jargon ridden sometimes that we could have featured, but I tried to select five that I think are relevant and helpful for us as investors. We use these a lot in my services, Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. And while I could give the five right up front, I think it's more fun just to dole them out one by one over the course of this podcast. Now, I have a lot of friends around Fool HQ. Everybody I work with is a friend of mine, and I'm really proud of a lot of my friends around Fool HQ. And I'm going to show five of them off, actually, four of them off this week, because rather than me just go through these concepts, I thought it'd be a lot more fun to have analysts that I work with every day here at The Fool on Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers come in and present with me the terms that we're going to go over and learn this week. So, without further ado, I want to introduce our first concept, and that's net profit margin. You're, if you don't already know what that is, you're gonna you're about to find out from my friend Andrew Fredrickson. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks. Now, Andrew, before we go into net profit margin, let me just ask you briefly: When did you start investing, or when did you first have an interest in investing? Sure. So I really started um, having an interest in, in investing in high school. Funny enough, because of the Motley Fool, um, my parents were subscribers to the newsletters, awesome. so started reading it there. I uh, went to Fool.com. And it kind of uh, blossomed over there into college, and um, really got into investing in college. Yeah, and where'd you go to college, Andrew? I went to the University of Virginia. All right, Wahoo! Beautiful wah. place. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I spent two good years in Charlottesville. 
watching my wife go through get her master's. It's such a wonderful place to go to school. Beautiful, yeah. And what do you do here at The Motley Fool? So I'm an analyst uh, for both Stock Advisor and Hidden Gems, our small cap newsletter service. Uh, so I help to cover the stocks and find exciting new companies. Excellent. And how about, before we get started, one final question. A favorite stock or two of yours? Sure. So, a stock that I really like, uh, we just recommended it in Hidden Gems, actually, is a company called MindBody. It does uh, the software uh, for uh, typically uh, yoga, like yoga studios, basically boutique fitness studios, huh. hair salons, kind of the wellness scene. Um, and it's much more specialized than you might think. So, they actually have a pretty good competitive advantage there. Really cool. What's the ticker? Ticker is MB. M is in Matthew, B is in mind, body. body. Awesome. All right. So, Andrew, you've got net profit margin for us. What is net profit margin? Sure. So, net profit margin is a fairly easy uh, concept to understand. Basically, what you do is you take uh, a company's net income or net profit, which is the money they make after you subtract out all of the expenses, the bottom line. Exactly. And divide that by the top line or your sales. So, for instance, if I at the end of my accounting period, have $10 in net income on sales of $100, my net profit margin will be 10%. And that's a really lovely net profit margin. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a sec. But that's yeah. kind of a level that I, that I really like when it hits double digits. Andrew, you did a good job just kind of laying out the simple math. Would you be so kind as to put net profit margin in a sentence for us? No problem. So, at the end of summer 2016, Andrew's lemonade stand generated a 15% net profit margin. Excellent. Good. And did that lemonade stand ever actually exist? Uh, it did, but only for a day or two at a time, <laughs> and not in the summer of 2016. All right, fair, but uh, 15% but maybe... margins on yeah. a lemonade stand, you, Pretty might, good. you might want to have a side gig going here, Andrew. Good. All right, so can you give an example or illustrate? Net profit margin, how we might use it here at The Motley Fool, or what we're looking for, maybe sure. a recent company or something like that. Yeah, so the really nice thing about net profit margin and looking at it in terms of percentage instead of an absolute number is you're able to compare companies kind of apples to apples. So you might have one company, one lemonade stand, for instance, that generates a net profit margin of 15%, and you're comparing it to another that generates a net profit margin of 10%. Typically, that is is a rule of thumb that that lemonade stand that's generating the higher net profit margin is more financially sound is clearly doing something better, and kind of the benefit of looking at it as a percentage is that it might be a smaller company for instance so maybe they only generate a net profit of you know ten dollars but um, if you're looking at a bigger competitor that absolute number might be bigger but on a percentage basis if it's if it's higher it's it's typically kind of the more exciting prospect yeah. You're exactly right. So the percentage tells us roughly how profitable a company is, and and I'm so glad you you referenced it within the context of a single industry because mm-hmm. it's a great simple comparison that we can run between different companies that are presumably right. doing the same thing, maybe even the same lemonade business. Yeah, and it can vary a lot industry to industry. So really, kind of like you mentioned, you want to compare it based within an industry. So, for instance, software is typically a very high margin industry. You'll see people in the 20, 30. 30% in terms of net margin but in uh, retail for instance for instance especially among like food retailers or bulk retailers it's very very low so Costco which is typically kind of a best in brand i think only has a 2% net margin mm. so very small and yet such a tremendously successful company over exactly. the course of time so each of our numbers this week it's not a one trick pony there's not a single number that tells you that's the one and therefore buy the stock right 
But this the one thing that I like about net profit margin, and then you let me know if you agree or what you want to add, yeah. Andrew, is that net profit margin. Uh, companies are competitive, right? There are a lot of competitors out there. So if you start seeing a company with twenty three percent margins. Mm-hmm. You might want to think, hey, maybe I'm going to start up something in that space right. because look how much money they can make yeah. at that. And yet, the companies that can maintain margins, high margins over over the course of time, suggest to me anyway. I hope to you mm-hmm. as well that they're very competitively savvy. Yes. That they're strong because everybody's trying to chip away against everybody else's margins all the time. Yeah. So one example, actually, just in this that I thought really illustrates this well is within the athletic footwear business. So the first company I think when you say that people think of is Nike. And so they have a lot of competitors. There's Adidas, Under Armour, Skechers, companies like that. And so I just looked at their net margins and in the last year, Nike's net margin is on average about double that of the competitors. So their net margin is twelve percent. Mm. Under Armour's is five, Adidas is five, and Skechers is seven. So I think that tells you something there that Nike Great brand. Everyone recognizes it. Clearly, they're doing something right, and they're able to leverage that brand to to ultimately lead to that higher net margin. It's a fair generalization to say maybe companies with better brands can have higher margins. Typically, yes. And and that's simply because you and I are willing to pay up for something yep, like Nike you're or to Starbucks. Pay a little bit more, and that leads all the way to the bottom line. Excellent. Andrew, thank you very much for your explanation of net profit margin, our first of five key terms we're going to learn this week. Thank you, sir. Of course. All right. From net profit margin, next we're going to go to cash flow versus net income. And to help us with that, my friend, Abby Mallon. Abby, how are you? I'm good. How are you, David? Really good. Now, I asked Andrew, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask each of my friends this week, how did you get started investing or where did your interest in investing originate? Yeah, so my whole family is actually in medicine, so it wasn't really a homegrown thing for me. Um, I've always really liked economics, and I had a really inspiring professor my freshman year of college. Excellent. Where were you in college? I went to Tulane University down in New Orleans. And there's a pretty good program there for investors. Yep, we do this program called Birkenroads. So, as a junior or senior, you are basically an unpaid analyst for a lot of undercover. Um, small caps that are based in the South and typically don't get a lot of analyst coverage, anyways. So wow, that's a really interesting. So so that was. Do you, were you covering a particular company or was there? I was a... I was covering Rollins, so they are a pest control company. What did you learn about Rollins? Um, I think one of the most interesting things that I think people technically miss is um, they're actually pretty recession proof because. Pests never give up. Yeah, pests never give up, and people always hate them. So, <laughs> well, it does seem sort of like a luxury service. It's pretty steady business and pretty um, strong recurring revenues. Nice, awesome. All right, so Abby, you got for us cash flow versus net income. Can you talk briefly? Just describe, explain what what's going on with these terms. Yeah, so I think net income is the one that people are typically more familiar with, and this is a measure of the company's total earnings. So, um, just from a math perspective, it's revenues less the cost of doing business. So that includes things like cost of goods sold, depreciation, interest, taxes, and other expenses. So this includes a lot of non-cash items, and some of those are um, stock-based comp, amortization, and expenses that were incurred but not yet paid for. Where operating cash flow is a little different. So, this is a measure of cash generated by the company's normal business procedures, and it can sort of be thought of as a cash version of the company's income statement. So, it focuses on the cash inflows and outflows. Um, 
So, and it's primarily related to the main business activities, which include selling and purchasing inventory, providing services, and paying salaries. Um, So basically, we have what these companies are doing. Well, to start with Andrew, Andrew gave us net profit margin. That that is net income. That's basically a percentage of sales. But as you're pointing out, there's a lot of overlap between that and cash flow, and yet the important difference is that one of them is just recognizing when the cash comes in, right? Chronologically, uh, cash flow businesses get that cash up front, have to account for it later. Yeah, I was just going to say, the only difference between the net income and operating cash flow are sort of the timing and recognition of the cash. That's right. So, what would be a typical business that would have a real disparity between its net income and its cash flow? Yeah, so um, at TMF, we particularly love subscription-based companies. And this is one of those ones where you see a bigger discrepancy, typically, between net income and operating cash flow. Because typically, these subscription-based companies uh, collect the cash upfront, and then um, it's technically unearned revenue, so it doesn't count in net income, but you will see on a cash basis. And that throws a lot of analysts who just look at earnings per share right. and not cash flow, it throws right. them off, right, Abby? Because um, if you or I subscribe, did Rollins, did Pest Control, is that a subscription business? It is actually a subscription ah, business. Okay, good. By the way, do you, can you use cash flow versus net income in a, in a sentence? Are you prepared to? Um, yeah. So, the first company I looked at and first company that came to mind for the subscription base that we're talking about was New York Times. So, uh, my sentence is that New York Times operating cash flow is greater than its net income because it takes money from subscribers up front and then provides the service throughout the year. An excellent uh, sentence <laughs> and one of our active stock picks at Motley Fool Stock Advisor, where you and I work together. It is. So, so, you're right. So, when you and I pay for a subscription to New York Times or Rollins or anybody, we give them all the money right up front. But the company is not allowed to account for that from an earnings recognition standpoint all up front, even though they got all of our money right right away. And so it is so what's going on then is that some companies will be consistently misread by investors who don't recognize the importance of cash flow. Correct. Do you have another example or anything else you want to throw in about this? Um, no, I would say the main advantage and the reason why we tend to look twice at companies like this too is that that cash can then be reinvested at higher rates of return and um, do some wonderful things for the company. You're so. absolutely right because when you and I give our money to the New York Times, they don't just let it sit there idly. No. At least we hope so for shareholders. We hope not, right? Yeah. Yes. And Abby, is there any other business or company that comes to mind that you want to share or something? Maybe, um, hey, the world doesn't get it, but now that you've listened to this podcast, you do. Um, Amazon is one of those kind of challenging ones to get at, and this plays a little bit into Amazon's structure just because they do have the Prime membership. So it's something to think about on that side. Or even Netflix, they could collect subscription revenues up front before they provide the service. So. That's a great point. Thank you. And you know, it is it is often the, these companies you'll hear that they're not profitable, but the reality is that they're getting their cash flow positive, sometimes wildly so. Yeah. And so this is sometimes this emboldens us to hold these stocks in the face of conventional wisdom, which is saying they're not making any money over there at Netflix or Amazon. Definitely. Abby Mellon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, so from net profit margin and cash flow versus net income, both of those are from the income statement and well, the cash flow statement as well. But basically, we're talking about traditional financial statements. Now, I was an English major in college. My next guest, Aaron, I know that you actually ultimately 
left college to come work at the Motley Fool, but what were you seemingly going to major in at the time? I was a finance major. So at you the were. Time. So you were headed I was. there. Nice. Yes. All right. So, so I I was an English major. So I didn't have any kind of a course that taught me financial statements. Um, there is an excellent book I'm going to recommend at the end of this podcast for anybody who's so motivated. But this is kind of those first two terms are classic kind of finance stuff that you learn just in the course of learning accounting. But this third concept, Aaron, is what. Uh, dividend yield. Dividend yield. So now we're kind of leaving the traditional financial statements and we're looking at more of an investment term, something that we need a stock market to have and we need stocks to pay dividends to have dividend yields. Aaron, what is a dividend yield? Actually, before I ask you that, would you please introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm Aaron Bush, work on the rule breakers and supernova services as an analyst. Excellent. And Aaron, when, when did your interest in investing start? Um, it actually started when my mom um, joined the Motley Fool community as a stock advisor member. I just happened to be looking over her shoulder at um, the newsletters and you know the printout. Um, How old were you at the time? I was about ten years old at that time. So it's been quite the the run. And not every ten year old who would be looking over their parents' shoulder as they read something about the stock market would actually go on to make it a part of their life. What was it about that? Mom, or that moment that had you at the age of 10 bitten by the bug? What it really was, I was helping my grandfather clean out his closet, and we ran across an old financial calculator. And he's like, I don't need this, you can have it. And I was like, okay, it's a free <laughs> thing. Um, and the only thing I could figure out in the whole thing was compound interest. And so, being the, you know, the 10 year old dork that I was at the time, I was. You know, building these little spreadsheets that had all the different ways. Like, if I have this much money at this percentage wow. rate over this amount of time, um, when I was ten, I thought I could be the richest person in the world. Um, I might have tapered back my expectations a bit, but the that is what really got me super interested. The power, early of, compounding on. power and of compounding, grandfather's financial calculator. I love it. Okay, and before we get to dividend yield, how about a favorite stock or two? Throw us a bone here. Sure. Well, I think one stock that has really captured my attention over the past several years, and even more so lately, and I think um, it also has captured us too, and more people are coming on board, is Activision Blizzard, um, which is just a phenomenal video game publishing company mm -hmm. that I know we both enjoy from mm -hmm. an investing perspective as well as a consumer Indeed. perspective. Both. But, but they've just had quite the run, um, generating more games, more people playing games, um, made a couple really strong acquisitions over, over the past few years, and I think they're really set up for success. Awesome. Ticker symbol? ATVI. You betcha. Okay. Aaron Bush, what is the dividend yield? Are you ready for some fourth grade math, David? Let's go. All right. So the dividend yield is the percentage of the current share price an investor can expect to receive in cash dividend payments over the course of a year. So it's calculated by taking the annual dividend per share payment divided by the current share price. Um, so just to, to give an example. Great. Um, David, just say you own one share of stock that's priced at $100, um, and it gives you $3 in dividends um, every single year. Um, that's a 3% dividend yield, the $3 divided by $100. Right, the $100 share price, yes. and I can look it up online, fool.com, other places, and I can see that there's a $3 per share dividend, probably paid out $0.75 cents a quarter. Yes, generally, okay. generally quarterly. Yep. Um, and of course, um, if you own more shares than just that one, you'll get the extra three dollars for every single share. Every that you single own. share gets me three bucks, and the dividend yield is three percent right there, right? Yes, because it's the percentage of the share price that you're getting paid back 
as a cash payment from your company. Absolutely. Aaron, can you use the phrase dividend yield in a sentence? Um, sure. As an amateur hot chocolate connoisseur and an investor who loves to generate income, I'm thrilled to see that Starbucks has a solid 1.6% <laughs> dividend yield and a steady track record of increasing its payout. Excellent. And you just threw in an extra bonus term there, payout. Let's talk briefly about that, because where do companies actually find the money to pay back to shareholders? Sure, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So, I guess to throw out another simple ratio would be the payout ratio. Um, and I guess there are a couple ways of defining that, but generally it's just the cash flow or the net income earnings that they produce over a certain period of time. And the percentage of that that they choose to pay in a dividend is the payout ratio. So if the company produces $100 million in, in profits, in profits um, sure, and they decide to pay $50 million of that in dividends, that's a 50% payout. Right. And so you, you want that ratio to be as low as possible. You'd love to think that the company, any company, could easily afford the dividend that it's paying. Right. So dividend payout ratio. Now, what is a typical dividend yield these days, Aaron? A typical dividend yield? Ballpark. Uh, I, if I had to guess on average, man, I really don't know. I don't know um, either, but let's go with 1.1%. 1.1%? That's it. Okay. We've just named 1.1 <laughs> as the magic number that is the average dividend yield. I feel like yield. I should know that. Well, we probably, anybody could look it up. We could look up, in fact, Aaron, I'm excited to announce through the magic of Google and real time podcasting that it is 1.93% as we tape the afternoon of Tuesday, March 7, 2017. There you go. 1.93%. So that's the average dividend yield for the S&P 500. Now, of course, there are many other companies on the American and global exchanges that pay dividends that are not part of the S&P 500, and I would guess that that number would come down. Yeah, probably the I average so. large S&P 500 company would have a higher dividend yield probably than some of the other smaller bit bit payers. Yeah, I would think so. And I'll just add really quickly, I think it's important for people to understand that most companies don't start out paying dividends. And so a lot of the times when we um, are looking at companies to recommend that are generally smaller, they're, they're really getting their start. Um, they're not really paying dividends at the time um, because they're in, they're reinvesting in order to grow. Um, but once a company matures, it starts generating um, plenty of cash regularly. Um, one hopes. One hopes. That that is always the hope. Um, <laughs> and and maybe its um, reinvestment opportunities um, dry up a little bit, just as a percentage of what they can do. They might start to pay a dividend. And connecting this back to what I was saying earlier with Activision Blizzard, I think that's a perfect example hmm. of a company that's done that. Um, so the company started paying a dividend in 2009, and it doubled it from 15 cents a share at the time to 30 cents a share today. Okay. Uh, right now, that amounts to a dividend yield of 0.6%. So it's not huge, but I do want to say on a historic basis, it might be bigger than you think it is. So, David, you first recommended Activision Blizzard, um, or I guess just Activision at the time. That That's right. Um, in 2002, for a split adjusted $3.20 a share. Um, you still yield that 0.6% today. Um, that said, if we were to take the current dividend today and compare it to when you first recommended right. so it, so thirty cents per share mm -hmm. per year, and you're just saying 
we paid three bucks for it back in the day. Right. So that that yields you about a ten percent annualized gain mm. off of that initial cost basis. That's a really pleasing right thought, Aaron. And so hopefully, I mean, I don't think Activision is anywhere close to being done on its climb. It's definitely it's raising its dividend every year. Um, that could, based on your cost basis, that could start yielding some really, really fantastic returns. Maybe there would be a day where we're getting paid more dividend per share than the cost per share we had for the stock back in the day. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Aaron, anything more to say about dividend yield before we whisk you away? One very last thing I'll say is, it's probably important not to get too hyped up about really high yields. Um, it's probably important to go look back at that payout ratio to see if whatever that company is paying out is sustainable. Um, what would be a stereotypical example of a mistake here? A company that can't afford it, or you don't have to give an actual one. I just mean, sure. what are we guarding our listeners against? Sure. Well, I can give an actual one. Um, I think energy sometimes, just industries that are really cyclical. Um, this might tend to be a bigger issue. So I know Kinder Morgan, for example, was a really uh, had a really high dividend yield at a point. They were also investing very heavily into other projects. So they had to make the decision um, just as um, energy prices fell and they came across harder times what to do. And they ended up dropping um, a big piece of the dividend because they they thought that their money was best um, somewhere else. Mm. Um, and so I think a lot of investors were disappointed by that. But those who were paying close attention would realize that that probably was, the right decision to make, and that the dividend yield at the end of the day wasn't everything. So companies typically will do their darndest to keep paying that dividend uh, because it's almost a bond or a contract unspoken with its shareholders. And a lot of, especially older investors, rely on the income coming in from their dividend-paying stocks. So mm-hmm. when companies have to change or cut back or sometimes scotch altogether their dividend, that's devastating for their reputation a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. All right, Aaron. That was really helpful. You know, the dividend yield, in a way, is kind of like the interest rate that you're getting paid to hold the stock. You could get an interest rate from your good luck, by the way, from your bank account or savings account, and you could see. And and, and so it's 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 in fact helpful to kind of compare that 1.93 percent the dividend yield right now of the S and P 500 against other things like three or six month CDs, other ways of earning interest. Now, it has to be said that when you're getting interest from a bond or a CD, that's usually a lot safer than um, than companies paying dividends. Uh, but for the best ones, the so-called dividend aristocrats, right? they're the mm-hmm. ones that have paid it. I'm not sure what the actual measure is. Do you know, Aaron? No. Dividend. But it's like companies for 20 or more years that have paid and raised their dividend. And for those, that probably feels sometimes about as safe as what the federal government might be able to set us up with when it comes to an interest rate. I would think so. Solid blue chips. All right. Aaron Bush, thank you. Thanks, David. All right. So, from net profit margin to cash flow versus net income to dividend yield, we got two more this week. But before we do, This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper is made with supportive memory foam for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design helps you regulate your temperature throughout the night. You can buy it easily online. It's completely risk-free because Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day 
period. Wow, 100 days. So you don't have to lie down in a showroom. Casper's mattresses are made in the USA, and you can save an additional $50 toward a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and entering the promo code, yep, you guessed it, F-O-O-L. That's casper.com slash fool, promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Up next, burn rate. Jim Mueller, welcome. Hello, David. You did that really well. Oh, thanks. You mean the ad read? The ad read, yes. But yeah, I, I enjoy reading ads. I think it was a calling that I never really got. <laughs> you know, I, I, Some people have said I would have been a good game show MC as well. Something else I'll never really get a chance to test. But thanks, Jim. I We're appreciate glad you're, that. Uh, you and your brother founded this company. So. <laughs> and I'm glad to have you working with us and for us. And Jim, how long have you been at The Fool? I've been... Here in Alexandria for a little over nine years now. Wonderful. Uh, but before that, I was what was called a stroller for stock advisor for a couple of years before that. On our discussion boards. On our discussion boards. And I think I'm around 12, 13, 14 years as, as a fool. Wonderful. What was your tr- professional training prior to The Motley Fool and investing? I'm actually, or was actually, a biochemist. Uh, and I got a PhD from Washington State University. Awesome. And Jim, do you find that you, you you still use that as you read through financial statements or do research or not? I don't use the knowledge I gained back then. I mean, it was on D, the repair of UV damage of DNA in Baker's yeast. Wow. Okay. Well, well, actually, Baker's yeast is a good uh, uh, stand-in for human uh, because the the, the bio- biological uh, systems inside the nucleus are, are very, very similar. similar? Yeah. Okay. And Got it's it. a lot easier to do experiments on yeast than it is on humans. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the thinking that a scientist needs to develop, uh, asking questions, making hypotheses, and finding out the digging into the data to figure out what's going on, that certainly has helped me as an analyst. Wonderful. And Jim, you and I have worked together for nine years here at The Motley Fool. Yep. It's been stock advisor, at least from my standpoint, all the way through. What else do you do here at The Fool? I also work on uh, Supernova. I'm the portfolio lead for the Phoenix One, which is probably the most boring portfolio you'll ever follow, because we don't do anything. And it's the single best performing one at yeah. Motley Fool Supernova yeah. thus far. So yeah, go us. <laughs> congratulations to you and the team. But uh, that portfolio right now is... Uh, uh, like Phoenix 2, received a bunch of money from the company, spread over uh, $750,000, I think, spread over most of two and a half uh, years. Mm-hmm. And then when it reached a million dollars, it flipped over into distribution mode. And at that point, it's been pretty much sitting there. We've uh, done a lot of selling to raise cash so we can pay the money back out. Uh, to the company, as if you were a retiree uh, living off of And that's what's so exciting, I think, about Phoenix One. I think it's the first one that we've done like that at The Motley Fool, where we are there helping people at or near retirement figure out what stock do I sell since I'm no longer earning income? How do I manage a portfolio, a seven-figure portfolio, um, as a net seller? Right. And and so... um yeah, so it's been quite the experience for me uh, figuring out out how to do that, and um, even and even though it's invested in in the companies like you like to recommend growth companies, uh, the portfolio was about just over a million dollars at the end of 2014 when we flipped it uh, flipped its mode and Phoenix Two was launched, uh-huh. and as of uh, yesterday, it was just shy of 1.3 million. It's been a little bit above 1.3 million last Wednesday, I think it was. Tremendous. That's great, Jim. Thank you. All right. So your term is? Burn rate. Burn rate. What is burn rate, Jim? So burn rate is basically how fast a, a company is going through its cash on the balance sheet. 
And uh, you, you find this out by generally looking at the cash flow statement, looking at where it's uh, spending money, the cash flow from operations and cash flow in investing. Uh, basically, a, a company has three sources of cash. The operations, what, uh, what Abby was talking about, it's uh, buying and selling stuff and selling to customers, then getting paid cash. Mm-hmm. Or it can sell part of itself, that is, sell shares to mm-hmm. the public or to private investors. Or it can issue debt. So those are the three sources of cash. And um, depending on what its burn rate is and whether it has one, if it's actually burning cash rather than generating cash, which is actually the goal, right? Yes. It's, um, it's not always easy, especially early on in company histories, yeah. but that's certainly the goal. And and so, uh, you can estimate how soon the company might need to issue more shares or issue debt by looking at it. Uh, and so, a healthy established company, as, as you just said, uh, will be generating cash, and it's not even a question. I mean. Look at Coca-Cola, for instance, or Activision Blizzard. Yeah, uh, neither of those companies has had a burn rate for a no. long, long time. But there is one on your side that I've gotten interested uh, in is To You. Uh-huh. Um, so that is a Motley Fool Rule Breaker premium service pick. Yep, a two-time pick, uh, last July and last October. That's right. And uh, so this is a great example. If you go go back uh, and look uh, back and through time, you can see that it uh, for the past several years, at least uh, in 2012, 2013, and so on. Up through 2015, it was spending about $25 million a year in its cash flow from operations and its investments, uh, its cap capital expenditures and buying some other assets that will help it to grow in the future. Mm-hmm. But it only had, at the end of 2012, it had just $25.2 million in the book, on the books in the bank. So its burn rate was one year, or $25 million would last one year. In 2013, it ended the year... With only uh, seven million dollars in the bank, okay, and so it was still spending twenty-three million dollars that year, and so at that rate, it would last only about three months. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, in twenty fourteen, the company went public and raised a, a little over a hundred million dollars by selling its shares in April of twenty fourteen, and still spent about twenty-three million dollars in in negative cash flow. Uh, and but it uh, but at that point it ended up with about a four year supply of cash on its books. There we go. A little less than eighty seven million. So it so it raised the cash not from operations but from selling the shares. So burn rate is great because it helps us understand roughly how much cash for how many years right. can we keep running if we're not making a profit. Right. And the and the ideal is that you you lower your burn rate over time. And this has been happening. Uh, the cash flow from operations has been getting. Uh, more and more positive or less and less negative uh, for, uh, for, for two, two you. Uh, and 2016, uh, cash flow from operations is now a positive number. And so it was negative and now it's positive, and that's the, that's the trend you'd like to see. And as it continues going on as a business, it's going to burn through less and less cash, and it's going to grow that, that cash balance on the sheet and eventually pay it out as a dividend or more reinvestments or what have you. Excellent. You know, I should mention briefly that Two U's business is to be the online wing of some prestigious universities' graduate programs. And so, an example would be, well, there's Cal Berkeley or the University of North Carolina's business school, Keenan Flagler. Um, to you partners with these schools, right, and ends up um, burning cash yep. on its way to creating ten-year partnerships with each of these schools and cutting 
cutting the revenue for the online students, and it's I think it's going to end up being a good model for 2U. I think so, too. Jim, do you, do you want to use burn rate in a sentence? Sure. It's more like a dying campfire. That's a good burn rate, a dying campfire that's slowly dying down to ashes and cold, and it's not burning things up. Uh, just stay away from those uh, blazing confl- conflagrations, <laughs> uh, such as uh, Sears Holdings, for instance. Ah, uh, they're okay, going yes. through billions of dollars in cash a year, and their operations are going down the tubes. And so that's a situation where burn rate is really going to end up destroying them. I'm sorry to hear that for Sears. Now, in closing, Jim, when I think about burn rate, at least on on the rule breakers side, you know, we have a lot of biotech companies in Motley Fool rule breakers. Burn rate is a phrase we use a lot around that particular industry. Are there any other industries or companies that you typically think about when you when you talk burn rate? Well, it's any company that is not making a lot of money and certainly doesn't have very good cash flow from operations that you really have to worry about it. I mean, you might think utilities, uh, they have a lot of cash needs up front. They're building those plants and everything or, or mm-hmm. stringing wires or what have you. Uh, but they uh, raise the cash from bonds and things like that, and that's the uh, that's the established business model. Mm-hmm. With a biotech, uh, they have all the research, especially if they don't have drugs. Uh, it's all in the pipeline. Uh, but they're spending millions of dollars on the research, and so that there definitely you would uh, pay attention to it. That you so bet. it's the it's a matter where the company is not making a bunch of money and revenue, but still has all the expenses uh, that you really need to look out for. This one awesome. Thank you, Jim Mueller. Thank you. All right, and that brings us to our fifth and final term, and I'll present this one. It's one of my own device, after all, and it's one of my favorite terms. In fact, I did a podcast about it. It was September of 2015. If you want to go back, you'll see the tale of Spiffy Pop. When I talked some about Netflix and Baidu, that particular podcast, back in September of 2015. But I want to make sure that at least once a year, I flash out the concept of Spiffy Pop via Rule Breaker Investing. So, first of all, what is it? Well, the concept of Spiffy Pop starts very simply with asking yourself, how much did you pay when you bought a stock? So, for example, if you just bought a stock at $17 a share, your cost basis is $17. $17 a share. And as a long term minded person, by definition, as an investor, one thing I've always tried to do and to model for all of my fellow fools and investors is the benefits of investing over long periods of time. It doesn't usually get a lot of play on CNBC. It's not that exciting when we talk 10 years later about a stock you paid 17 for way back when. Most of the world is focused very much on short term returns and stocks that pop. And pop is often defined as, you know, maybe jumping 7% after hours because of a good earnings report. So I decided we need something for when a stock does a really special kind of pop. So, sticking with my example of $17 a share, if one day, at some point in the far-flung future, that stock that you paid $17 a share for goes up in a single day by $17 or more, I decided there's got to be a term for that. I want to reify that. I want to make that real like the Velveteen Rabbit. I want to love it into existence. And so we decided we have to put a name to it. So rather than call that a pop, we decided years ago at Motley Fool Rule Breakers to call that a spiffy pop. Another synonym that we'll sometimes use for that is a day bagger. We talk about two baggers, like you doubled your money. Well, what about in a single day if you made as much in that one day as you paid for a stock way back when? That's a day bagger. That's a spiffy pop. I will now use spiffy pop in a sentence. 
When Activision Blizzard spiffy popped on March 1st of this year for Motley Fool Stock Advisor, that was the fifth Motley Fool spiffy pop of 2017. And yes, that is a factual sentence. I'm happy to say Hasbro, NetEase, and Universal Display, as well as another spiffy pop by Activision Blizzard, are the five that we've had so far in 2017. But I think for a lot of people, They've never had a spiffy pop. In fact, if you're taking advice from somebody, I would highly encourage you to find out if they've ever gotten a spiffy pop. I think you and I should be listening to people who can generate great returns over time. And so that's why I think the concept of spiffy pop is so important. Now, it's a delightful feeling to watch a stock literally make more money for you in a single day than you paid for it way back when. It usually does take time. For example, when Universal Display spiffy popped on February 24th of this year for Motley Fool Rule Breakers, that was a stock we first recommended on May 18th of 2005. So, we waited almost 12 years for that first spiffy pop, but ah, how sweet it is, and you never forget your first. There's probably a lot more I could say about Spiffy Pop, but this has been one of our longer podcasts anyway, so I'm going to leave it right there. And I'm going to thank you for suffering fools gladly. This week, we covered net profit margin, we covered cash flow versus net income, dividend yield, burn rate, and Spiffy Pop. Now, again, our goal to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. And if some of these terms were unfamiliar to you beforehand, I'm glad that they are now. And I hope you'll share it out if you have a friend or acquaintance who would enjoy learning more about some of the simple terms that we start to use as stock market investors. And it's always easy math. That's the way I like to keep my math, whether it's net profit margin. These are simple ratios often. Uh, And let me mention, in closing, an excellent book that I enjoyed as a young investor. I read this one right after college. As I mentioned, as an English major, I didn't take any accounting courses in college, but I sure did enjoy the book, How to Read a Financial Report. And that's by John Tracy. And that book is purchasable on Amazon. What I love about How to Read a Financial Report is Tracy takes you through the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement and shows how they link across each other, how they're all networked together with the same hive of basic information. But once you and I, once the scales fall from our eyes and we start to understand the simple terms and concepts on financial statements and the numbers behind them, I think an entire world is unlocked for you as an investor. So, we've hoped to do a little bit of that for you this week. All right, you can check out past episodes of Rule Breakers and of all the Motley Fools podcasts at our podcast center. Just go to podcasts.fool.com. And while you're there, you can check out our flagship service, Motley Fool Stock Advisor. I had some of my favorite analysts joining with me today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor and, of course, Rule Breakers as well. A new issue of Stock Advisor comes out the third Friday of every month with two new stock recommendations from me and my brother, Tom Gardner. You can check it out by going to the Podcast Center and scroll to the bottom of the page. That's podcasts.fool.com. Till next week, Fool On! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 